This week's episode contains themes of suicide, PTSD, and mental illness. If that isn't your cup of tea, that's fine, and we'll see you next week. Alright, we're ready to start. Ready to start. Ready for the most low energy podcast episode we've ever. Hey, listen, this is caffeinated tea, Jane. It's That's also... a spoiler for the tea today. But it's also 9:40 p.m. on a Tuesday night, and we both have class. Well, actually, I don't have class that early, but I have to get up and do homework. I have class, have class. early. Thanks. So, welcome to the low energy but also fake high energy podcast. <laughs> sure. I'll do the real intro. Alright, welcome to Spilling Tea, the podcast where two friends sip tea and spill literature's dark histories. I'm Jane. I am Mackenzie. (laughs) That was so delayed. I'm so sorry. I'm concerned. I mean, maybe a little bit, you know? Yeah, we are getting to that point in the semester that everything is just concerning. Everything's concerning, and everyone's concerning. And everyone is concerned for our mental health. Silent nodding. Silent nodding. Alright. I nod as though they can see me. I know. You keep you keep doing that every so often. You'll give me facial expressions and you're like, yes, this is exactly... This is how podcasts work. This is how podcasts works. I will convey, convey my emotions through my facial expressions and that is completely fine. And I mean, like, it is completely fine because I can see you. And then again, no one listens, so... Shout out to our three listeners. Jazzy, glad you're all still here. So, this week, we are... Stop that. Stop playing with things. It shows up on the recording. I have nice teapots, and I like to touch them, and Jane doesn't like it when I do that. Did you hear what you just said? I did hear what I just said, but I'm also talking about a literal ceramic teapot, so you'll be fine. Um, okay. Things... People have done worse. Hey, listen. Hey, listen, what? Hey, listen, it's my ASMR. It's my... Stop! I'm gonna have to listen to that. It's gonna make me so uncomfortable. Alright, this week we are covering Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. We sure are. A fantastic novel that I believe both of us read for the first time in... Here? Here, yeah, at our college. Um, and in a lit 101. Intro to... It was 199. 199. It was intro to lit. Intro to lit class, where our fabulous teacher... I love that gal. Love that gal. Uh, suggested this book, and it was, like, required reading, and it mm-hmm. was I remember we, revolutionary. Yeah, we read it, and I remember we both, like, finished it in the library together, and we yeah. were both just like, hey, what? Is this the book that, um... Very Queer Fish. A Very Queer Fish came from? Mm-hmm. So, context, there is a line in this book that says... They refer to somebody as a very queer fish. They're like, oh, yeah. what a very queer fish she is. And, um, I made that Mackenzie's... Facebook Messenger uh, mm-hmm. name in for chat. in a group chat for a very long period of time. I think it might still be. If I think it is. If that group chat, chat, I don't think it still exists anymore because everyone left. That's a whole <laughs> another story. Um, but Mackenzie's like Facebook Messenger name was a very queer fish, mm-hmm. and no one else had nicknames for a period of time, yep. and it was very confusing. And a fish emoji. And a fish emoji. That was it. Was a puffer fish too? Yeah, it was. Because puffer fish, I believe, are the queer icons of the sea. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. <laughs> I'm sorry, can you think about what you just said for a minute? Just reflect. Self-reflect. Okay. I did self-reflect, and I'm not regretting any statement I've made. <sighs> okay. Do you want to 
Do you want to give the uh, authors a uh, life? Tell uh, us a little bit we do about the tea first, Jane. Did oh, you forget the good order God, of this I whole did. Podcast? I did. It's almost like I've listened to all of our episodes back, but I did forget about the tea. All right. What tea are so we drinking? This week's tea is a bergamot vanilla lavender Earl Grey tea from the Tea Guys. Which, they're a pretty new brand, they're pretty, right? They're a pretty new brand, I, I believe. I tried their um, sparkling, like, tea spritzer that they had Ooh, at what? Oh, at it's the, local. Yeah, it is local. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they have, like, a tea spritzer. Like, mm-hmm. it's carbonated tea. It's very interesting. I actually kind of liked it. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, Mackenzie also did buy this with me. I don't tell you what I... I just buy a lot of tea all the time. It's not I really know, that but sketch. I was like, ooh, bergamot vanilla lavender, and you were like, I like that. Give that I also to me. love all of these flavors. I know. Okay. I drink Earl Grey every morning, so... All also, right. Okay. Give so me some context. Tea, um, I'm going to read their little blurb about it first. Please so, do. Our take on a classic Earl Grey. This unexpected twist pairs beautifully fragrant oil of bergamot with a kiss of sweet vanilla and floral lavender that dances on your palate long after you've drained your cup. I like that. It's so artsy. Yeah. Ooh. So, I chose this one, um, a couple of reasons. Going back to it, Earl Grey is a classic English tea. How many Earl Greys have we had on the show? Only two. We only had it for Tale of Two Cities. We did a lot of English breakfast. Wait, are you serious? I'm serious. This is the only the second time we've had an Earl Grey. <gasps> they all sound the same to me. <laughs> yeah. So, the Earl Grey, you know, the classic English, and Virginia Woolf is one of, like, the most famous English writers of, like, the 20th century. She is an English writer? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I just want Did to... Did I fuck up really bad? She's a British writer, yeah! You have oh, spooked Oh, for a I second. get her mixed up with, um... Person who wrote the yellow wallpaper. I Shelley Perkins Gilmore? Yeah, Gilman? I get her mixed Gilman? up yeah. with Gilman. Yeah. Okay, I was like, she's British. I literally based this whole thing around her being British. I can't be wrong. I'm not wrong. You're not wrong. Okay. I was just... I just but, wanted you to fact check. So the Earl Grey tea, but also the lavender, because... Virginia Woolf, um, there's a lot of speculation about her sexuality. She was probably, if we were to use modern terms, probably bi would be what we would apply That to would make her. sense, yeah. And there's also a lot of, in this book in particular, there's a lot of, there's there's a very explicit relationship between two women. Which I'm sure which we will get into I'm the sure plot we will summary. Get into. But um, Lavender has historically been associated with lesbians. Real, really? Yeah. Wait, are you the serious? The Lavender Menace. <gasps> You're right. Which was the group of the lesbian radical feminists that kind of formed to protest the exclusion of lesbians and lesbian issues from the feminist movement in You're the 70s. Right. Which is, like, super cool. Yeah. And also purple in general is a color that's heavily associated with lesbians as well. You're right. I yeah. did not... Wow. Yeah. Huh. So it's, you know, different time periods. Obviously, Virginia Woolf wasn't writing during, like, the you know, modern, the second wave feminist movement in the U.S., but I think it was a nice connection. Yeah, I think that's a jazzy also, I'm connection. I'm really excited to drink this tea. I'm excited to try their teas because I've mm-hmm. had, like, like I said before, I've had their sparkling tea, but I haven't had yeah. any of their, like, bag teas. So I'm pretty excited because this is a very new brand. Yeah. And I love to show them su- some support. Mm-hmm. So, Tea Guys. Tea Guys. Sponsor us. Sponsor us. You're a new brand. Listen to that tea. We're also a new brand. A very, very terrible <laughs> new brand. We're a new brand, and they're a new brand, and we would have a great partnership if they provide the oh, tea. Oh, I just talked, I put my finger in that tea. Um, I'm sorry, it's yeah, very we hot. we live in the same room, so. It just, just we, burned me a little bit. It might be too hot to drink. Oh, this is definitely too hot to drink? It's got a very interesting smell. Mm-hmm. What is that? Is that bergamot? 
Maybe. What is bergamot? Can you... It's the oil. Remember? It's bergamot. It's a variety of orange that's often grown in Italy and France because I used it for Tale of Two Cities because Earl Grey yes. is a very English tea yes. with bergamots in France. But oh, yeah, okay. um, the Rhine's fragrant oil is added to black tea to give Earl Grey its unique taste. Huh. And remember, we read the whole thing about how the bergamot was like, hang on, let me find it. It was like bergamot was meant to imitate the more expensive types yes. of Chinese yes, tea. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So it's like, I love it, but I can't believe it started off as like the poor man's tea, basically. Or is that just very strong lavender? I honestly can't tell. Let me take a sip. Okay, because you can drink your tea hotter mm-hmm. than I can. Mm. It's very, it's probably the lavender. You think it's, it's really, the lavender? Or the vanilla. It's a, the vanilla is stronger than I thought it would be. I'm. I really like it. It almost has like a burnt-ish smell mm-hmm. to it. Did it steep for too long? No, I'm not getting that. And it steeped for the perfect amount of time. I set a timer. I'm very intrigued, because all the ones that we've had, like all the Earl Grey's we've had before, have had a very distinct smell, mm-hmm. and this does not have this that. one's different, because it's got the vanilla and the lavender, which are not common in the Earl Grey. Yeah. Um, I'm, I already I'm, drink like half my cup, so. Yeah, I'm waiting, because I you can't have a drink. very sensitive mouth. So. Jane likes, likes it. to. She likes to make a cup of tea, <laughs> go take her shower, do her whole night routine <laughs> that takes her like half an hour, and come back and drink her lukewarm tea. I'm sorry. And I drink my tea scalding hot. The Keurig finishes, and I'm like, perfect. (laughs) I'm sorry I have sensitive taste buds. You don't need to come for my brand. Sorry I don't. (laughs) Sorry I can drink scalding hot water and be fine. Sorry your throat doesn't have any sensitivity. Apparently not. Apparently not. So while I sit here with my hot, hot cup of tea, why... just let it warm you. And let it warm my cold, cold Cold soul. soul. Why don't you move into the... Author's biography. So tell me about our gal, Virginia Woolf. So Virginia Woolf, I did not know this until this second. Uh, actually, Adeline Virginia Woolf. Ooh, Adeline. Yeah. I almost was named Adeline. Oh, nice. That's a really pretty and name. Elena. That would have been funky. I know, considering my best friend's name, name is Elena. Elena. <laughs> I know it. Yeah, agree. So yeah, Adeline Virginia Woolf. Um, she was born in 1882, a British writer. Oh, wow, the taste is nothing like the smell. Sorry, just took a sip. Is it good? Oh, wow, wow, yeah. wow. Why good? is it biting my is tongue? It... What? It's like, it's like got a, it's got a quality to it that's kind of like bitey. I don't know how, it, I think I it's know. the vanilla. It might be. It's a really strong vanilla. It's stronger than I thought. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Adeline Virginia Woolf, born in 1882. British writer, considered one of the most important modernist 20th century authors, and a pioneer in the use of stream of consciousness as a narrative device, which is, like, this whole book is just stream of consciousness. I honestly love stream of consciousness books. It's so wild to read. They're they're insanity, and it entertains me. What are you looking for? I'm actually seeing if I have my copy here. Not that it makes a difference, but I kind of want to know now. I don't Your copy of what? Of Mrs. Dalloway. Oh. I don't think I grabbed it. Not that it makes a difference, but now I'm curious. But I don't have it. Oh, no, I do. It's beautiful. It really is. <laughs> so, she was born, other than being British, she was born into an affluent household in South Kensington, London, and she was the seventh child in a blended family of eight. And her mother, celebrated as a pre-Raphaelite artist's model, had three children from her first marriage, and her father, a notable man of letters, had one previous daughter. Their marriage produced another four children, including the modernist painter Vanessa Bell. 
And while the boys in the family were educated at university, the girls were homeschooled in English classics and Victorian literature. An important influence in her early life was the summer home the family used in St. Ives, Cornwall, where she first saw the Godrevy Lighthouse, which was to become iconic in her novel, To the Lighthouse. Mm. And her childhood came to an abrupt end in 1895 with the death of her mother and her first mental breakdown, followed two years later by the death of her stepsister and surrogate mother. And from 1897 to 1901, she attended the Ladies' Department of King's College London, where she studied classics and history and came into contact with early reformers of women's higher education and the women's rights movement. Other important influences were her Cam Cambridge-educated brothers and unfettered access to their father's vast library. She began writing professionally in 1900, encouraged by her father, whose death in 1905 was a major turning point in her life and the cause of another breakdown. Wait, did you say 1800 or 1900? I, I meant to say 1900, regardless of what I said. Okay. It's 1900. I thought you said 1800. I'm like, wow, that's a lot it's older than I thought. <laughs> no, no. But following um, her father's death, the family moved from Kensington to the more bohemian Bloomsbury, where they adopted a free-spirited spirit, li lifestyle. It was there that, in conjunction with their brother's intellectual friends, they formed the artistic and literary Bloomsbury group. I, yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's all coming back to me from my first, the first time I read Virginia Woolf in like AP Lit. Yep. In 1912, Woolf married Leonard Woolf, and in 1917, they founded the Hogarth Press, which published much of her work. The couple rented second homes in Sussex and moved there permanently in 1940. Throughout her life, Woolf was troubled by bouts of mental illness, which included being institutionalized and attempting suicide. Her illness is considered to have been bipolar disorder, for which there was no effective intervention at the time. Eventually, in 1941, she committed suicide by putting rocks into her pockets and drowning herself in a river at the age of 59. Aww. During the interwar period, Wolfe was an important part of London's literary and artistic society. She published her first novel, The Voyage Out, in 1915 through her half-brother's publishing house, Gerald Duckworth and Company. Her best-known works include the novel, Mrs. Dalloway, Accurate. To the Lighthouse, and Orlando. She is also known for her essays, including A Room of One's Own, in which she wrote the much-quoted dictum, A woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. Wait. What are her other works? I'm trying to remember if I've read A Room... What is that? A Room, to a one's room own. of One's Own. A Room of One's Own. Or there's one about a mirror, or unless the mirror is in that one. Let me see. Okay, you can keep going. I'm okay. just going to look at this. I just have, I'm whipping out more books I have about Virginia Woolf. I don't know if A Room of One's Own is in there. Oh, it but... was The Mark on the Wall. Okay. That's the one yeah. I've read. But she actually became one of the central subjects of the 1970s movement of feminist criticism, and her works have since garnered much attention and widespread commentary for inspiring feminism, an aspect of her writing that was unheralded earlier. Her works are widely, widely read all over the world and have been translated into more than 50 languages. A large body of literature is dedicated to her life and work, and she has been the subject of many plays, novels, and films. Some of her writing has been considered offensive and has been criticized for a number of complex and controversial issues, including anti-Semitism and elitism. Wolf is commemorated today by statues, societies dedicated to her work, and a building at the University of London. Hmm. That's, yeah. I mean, that's nice. That's a pretty, a big yeah. monument. Mm-hmm. All right. So, do you want to try, or can you drink your tea, or is it still I, I have been. It's, it's been delicious. I just, like, 
I also don't want to drink too much caffeinated tea at uh, As I pour myself a second cup because I love tea. You go for it. You also sleep like a brick and don't have insomnia. So. Ah, caffeine keeps me up. So let's see how <laughs> this goes. Let's play this game. This dangerous, dangerous game. I can't game. have coffee after about noon or I will be up all day. All night. I had a London fog at four. I had a London oh, fog. Oh no, I had a London one. So I, I had a London okay. fog at five thirty. Hmm. So um we're already treading on dangerous water, so I don't want to make it worse. I'm gonna chug this tea and pass the fuck out. <laughs> Power to you, man. All Ooh, right. If I fall asleep before the caffeine hits. <laughs> then the caffeine can't hit. Can't we're, both, hit. we're both gonna wake up at 2 a.m. and I'm gonna have my headlamp on in my bedroom. You don't have a headlamp. Yes, I do. Show me. Sorry, Jane is getting up to show me her headlamp, but I don't believe she has because I've never seen it. And I've I got it this weekend. Why haven't I seen this yet? It's pink. It's Why rechargeable. Because my dad bought two. Why is it pink? Because he got the pink one for my mom, and mm-hmm. then he thought he lost his black one, so then he gave, he gave, well, he was getting a couple's gift for my mom, so mm-hmm. she got, she got a pink one, and he got a black one, and then he thought he lost his black one, so then he bought himself another one, then he found his black one, so he gave me the new black one, but then my mom was like, I kind of like the black one, so then I got the pink one. Why you, I'm just so shook that you have a headlamp. Jane has her headlamp on her head and has and, turned. And look. And it moves. Oh, like it, it, it doesn't moves. just point wait, in one direction. Wait. It gets better. Oh, it has brightness levels. I hate it. can flash. Are we in a rave? Wait. It now turns red. Oh, that hurts my eyes. And then it flashes red. It flashes it SOS flashes. in red. Jane, I hate this. Please put it away. I am putting it away. I had to show you all the features of my headlamp because I'm oh very excited. Because also, I I was told by my doctor that because of my, my insomnia has gotten uh-huh. so bad and the fact that melatonin, I still wake up with melatonin, um, that I'm not allowed to be in my bed if I wake up in the middle of the night. Uh-huh. So now I'm just going to sit in my chair and headlamp and read in the middle of the night. Just an FYI. So if you wake up at 2 a.m. to use the bathroom. I'm, I'm going to be so spooked. <laughs> it's just going to be me sitting there reading. Sorry. I'm a terrible roommate. All right. Where were we? Plot summary? <laughs> Plot summary. So Mrs. Dalloway covers one day from morning to night in one woman's life. Clarissa Dalloway, an upper-class housewife, walks through her London neighborhood to prepare for the party she will host that evening. When she returns from flower shopping, an old suitor and friend, Peter Walsh, drops by her house unexpectedly. The two have always judged each other harshly, and their meeting in the present intertwines with their thoughts of past. Years earlier, Clarissa refused Peter's marriage proposal, and Peter has never quite gotten over it. Peter asks Clarissa if she is happy with her husband Richard, but before she can answer, her daughter Elizabeth enters the room. Peter leaves and goes to Regent's Park. He thinks about Clarissa's refusal, which still obsesses him. The point of view... I'm sorry. Can he get over himself? Jesus Christ. men need to stop. Also, wasn't Peter the one in the flashback who, like, walked in on Clarissa and Sally and was like, how you two gal pals doing? Yes, that's exactly who it was. Oof. Love Peter. So, the point of view then shifts to Septimus, a veteran of World War I who was injured in a trench warfare and now suffers from shell shock. Septimus and his Italian wife, Lucrezia, pass time in Regent's Park. They are waiting for Septimus's appointment with Sir William Bradshaw, a celebrated psychiatrist. Before the war, Septimus was a budding young poet and lover of Shakespeare. 
When the war broke out, he enlisted immediately for romantic patriotic reasons. He became numb to the horrors of war and its aftermath. When his friend Evans died, he felt little sadness. Now Septimus sees nothing of worth in England, in the England he fought for, and he has lost the desire to preserve either his society or himself. Suicidal, he believes his lack of feeling is a crime. Clearly, Septimus's experiences in the war have permanently scarred him, and he has serious mental problems. However, Sir William does not listen to what Septimus says and diagnoses a lack of proportion. Sir William plans to separate Septimus from Lucretia and send him to a mental institution in the country. Sorry, just a heavy sigh. Yeah. Old-timey psychologists mm -hmm. and psychiatrists just make Bad. me mad. Mm-hmm. So next we have Richard Dalloway eating lunch with Hugh Whitbread and Lady Bruton, members of high society. Did you say Whitbread? Whitbread. Whitbread. I think that makes it even better, but I want it to be Whitbread just I on principle. It was white bread for a second. Oh my god, Hugh it was white bread. <laughs> Hugh Whitbread. Can we you only refer to him as Hugh Whitbread from Whitbread. now on? Well, I think that's the one time I refer to him because he's not that important. So just bring him up. Bring him up again. So the men help Lady Brut Bruton. Bruton. What did I just say? I have no I think idea. I said Bruton. Write a letter to the Times, London's largest newspaper. After lunch, Richard returns home to Clarissa with a large bunch of roses. He intends Aww, to tell sweet. Yeah. That was he intends loud. to tell her that he loves her, but finds that he cannot because it has been so long since he last said it. Okay, not so sweet. Clarissa considers the void that exists between people, even between husband and wife. Even though she values the privacy she is able to maintain in her marriage, considering it vital to the success of the relationship, at the same time she finds it slightly disturbing that Richard doesn't know anything about her. Same. Clarissa sees off Elizabeth and her history teacher, Miss Kilman, who are going shopping. The two older women despise one another passionately, each believing the other to be an oppressive force over Elizabeth. Meanwhile, Septimus and Lucretia are in their apartment, enjoying a moment of happiness together before the men come to take Septimus to the asylum. One of Septimus's doctors, Dr. Holmes, arrived, and Septimus fears the doctor will destroy his soul. In order to avoid this fate, he jumps from a window to his death. Peter hears the ambulance go by to pick up Septimus's body and marvels ironically at the level of London's civilization. He goes to Clarissa's party, where most of the novel's major characters are assembled. Clarissa works hard to make her party a success, but feels dissatisfied by her own role and acutely conscious of Peter's critical eye. All the partygoers, but especially Peter and Sally Seton, Seton? Seton. Sally Seton have, to some degree, failed to accomplish the dreams of their youth. So this isn't in the thing, but I do want to go on a quick tangent about Sally Seton. Please go on a tangent. So she, I don't talk about Sally Seton at all, so please tangent okay. as much as you yeah. want. So Sally Sutton kind of tangent about her. It kind of exists only as a figure in Clarissa's memory for like most of the novel until mm -hmm. this final moment. And when she appears at Clarissa's party, she's older but still familiar. And even though the women haven't seen each other in a really long time, Sally still puts Clarissa first when she counts her blessings, even before her husband or her five sons. And as a girl, Sally was without inhibition. And as an adult at the party, she is still effusive. Effusive? Sure. Effusive. And lacks Clarissa's restraint. Long ago, Sally and Clarissa plotted to reform the world together. Now, however, both are married, a fate they once considered a catastrophe. 
Sally has changed and calmed down a great deal since the Borton days, but she is still enough of a loose cannon to make Peter nervous and to kindle Clarissa's old warm feelings. Both mm-hmm. Sally and Clarissa have yielded to the forces of English society to some degree, but Sally keeps more distant than Clarissa does. She often takes refuge, refuge in her garden, <laughs> and she despairs <laughs> over communicating with humans. However, she has not lost all hope of meaningful communication. She still thinks that saying what one feels is the most important contribution one can make to society. Clarissa considers the moment when Sally kissed her on the lips and offered her a flower at Borton the most exquisite moment of her whole life. Gay. Yes! <laughs> society- See, that was warranted! <laughs> society would never have allowed that love to flourish, since women of Clarissa's class were expected to marry and become society wives. Sally has always been more of a free spirit than Clarissa, and when she arrives at Clarissa's party, she feels rather distant from and confused by the life Clarissa has chosen. The woman's kiss marked a true moment of passion that could have pushed both women outside of the English society they know, and it stands out in contrast to the confrontation Peter remembers between Sally and Hugh regarding women's rights. One morning at Borton, Sally angrily told Hugh he represented the worst of English middle class, and that he was to blame for the plight of young girls in Piccadilly. Later, Hugh supposedly kissed her in the smoking room. Hughes is the forced kiss of traditional English society, while the kiss with Clarissa is a revelation. Ultimately, the society that spurs Hugo's kiss prevails for both women. Mm. So, back to actual plot. Yes. Yes. But, yes, that was important. Though the social order is undoubtedly changing, Elizabeth and the members of her generation will probably repeat the errors of Clarissa's generation. Sir William Bradshaw arrives late, and his wife explains that one of his patients, the young veteran Septimus, has committed suicide. Mm. Clarissa retreats to the privacy of a small room to consider Septimus's death. She understands that he was overwhelmed by life and that men like Sir William make life intolerable. She identifies with Septimus, admiring him for having taken the plunge and for not compromising his soul. She feels, with her comfortable position as a society hostess, responsible for his death. The party nears its close as guests begin to leave. Clarissa enters the room and her presence fills Peter with a great excitement. Mm. What? I don't know. I'm just thinking about things. I got some thunks. Sorry, I'm very distant. I got, um, I'm currently trying to figure out something with my boyfriend. I am very sorry. I apologize. Give me one second. You, if you want to rant about I just... I wrote a whole, it's really important for everyone to know that uh, my final paper for our intro to lit class was, I think, was five pages about the relationship between Sally Sutton and Clarissa Dalloway. Like, I, my whole paper was about them. I'm pretty sure I talked about, Mm -hmm. uh, what is it, Septimus? Septimus. Yeah, I wrote a whole ass paper. All right, figure that out. We're, we're trying to figure out when we're going on our little road trip. Ooh, fun. Yeah, it's very difficult. He wanted to leave next uh, Monday, but the issue is uh, he wanted to go sooner and I have a seminar. So <laughs> that doesn't get out to 4.30. All right, moving on. So Septimus Warren Smith is sort of the tragic character in Mrs. Dalloway. He commits suicide because it's the only coping mechanism he has to deal with his traumatic experience in World War One. Well, it was never really explicitly said in Miss Dalloway. They kind of coded it in a whole bunch yeah. of little flowery language. Septimus was suffering from shell shock, which would later be called PTSD. Mm-hmm. It falls under the PTSD umbrella. Shell shock describes the type of post-traumatic stress disorder many soldiers were afflicted with during the war. 
It is a reaction to the intensity of bombardment and fighting that produced a helplessness appearing variously as panic and being scared, flight, or an inability to reason, sleep, walk, or talk. You know, maybe the causes of young men going to war and being mm-hmm. scared for their lives. But anyways, cases of shell shock could be interpreted as either a physical or psychological injury or simply as a lack of moral fiber. More on that later. In World War II and thereafter, a diagnosis of shell shock was replaced by combat stress reaction, which was a similar but not identical response to the trauma or warfare and in bombardment. Bombardment. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't choke. Please don't choke. (laughs) Can I help you? You good? <laughs> Bum what? Bombardment. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to go to sleep right now. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. I have so much more. You're going to enjoy my funky fact so much. Okay. The origins of shell shock date back to 1914 during the early stages of World War One. Soldiers from the British ex- ex- Oh, God. Why is my brain not It's the word exposition. No. Expedentiary? What? Here, look. I can't read. Expedentiary. Yeah, expedentiary. Sounds good. Expedentiary for emphasis. Nope, you know what? Fuck it. Google Translate. Jane, please just keep going. I can't, Mackenzie. This comes up multiple times. Oh, no. I need to know how to say it now. Expedentiary? Expedentiary. Expedentiary. I hope volume is gone. My volume is on because I don't want my computer to make noises while we're recording. Hold on, hold on. Here we go. Turning up loud so everyone can hear my mistakes. Oh boy. Expeditionary. (laughs) You were really wrong. (laughs) Yep, I was. Uh, Soldiers from the British Expeditionary. (laughs) What was it? What was it? Expeditionary. Expeditionary force began to report medical symptoms after combat, including uh, tinnitus. Nope. Tinnitus. Tinnitus. There we go. Ringing in the ear. Yep. Amnesia, headaches, dizziness, tremors, and hypersensitivity to noise. These symptoms were commonly associated with head wounds, but interestingly, no head wounds were found on these men. By December 1914, as many as 10% of British officers and 4% of enlisted men were suffering from nervous and mental shock. The term shell shock came into use to reflect an assumed link between the symptoms and the effects of explosions from artillery shells. The number of shell shock cases grew during 1915 and 1960, but it remained poorly understood medically and psychologically. Some doctors held the view that it was a result of hidden physical damage to the brain, with the shockwaves from bursting shells creating a cer- oh, my God, I hate my brain. cerebral lesion that caused the symptoms and could potentially prove fatal. Another explanation was that shell shock resulted from poisoning by the carbon monoxide formed by explosions. At the same time, an alternative view developed describing shell shock as an emotional rather than physical injur- injury. Evidence for this point of view is provided by the fact that an increasing proportion of men suffering shell shock symptoms had not been exposed to artillery fire. Since the symptoms appeared in men who had no proximity to an exploding shell, the physical explanation was clearly unsatisfactory. 
There were different management styles for shell shock depending on what type it was, basically whether it was acute or chronic. At first, shell shock casualties were rapidly evacuated from the front line, in part because of the fear of their unpredictable behavior. As the side of the British expedi- expeditionary expeditionary <laughs> expeditionary force increased and ma- manpower became in short supply, the number of shell shock cases became a growing problem for the military authorities. As the battle as the Battle of the Somme in 19 Oh, I forgot to finish that part of the day. I think it was 1917. <laughs> it's just 19, or it's just 9, or 191 right now, and I think it's 1970. <laughs> as many as 40% of casualties were shell-shocked. Sorry, I'm going to keep messing up shell-shocked because it's a tongue twister and I keep mm-hmm. saying it. Were shell-shocked, resulting in concern about an epidemic of psychiatric casualties, which could not be afforded in either military or financial terms. Among the consequences of this were an increasing official preference for the psychological interpretation of shell shock and a deliberate attempt to avoid the medicalization of shell shock. If men were uninjured, it was easier to return them to the front to continue fighting. Another consequence was an increasing amount of time and effort devoted to understanding and treating shell shock symptoms. A man who began to show shell shock symptoms... (laughs) Shell shock symptoms was best given a few days rest by his local medical medical officer. There are so many typos in this. I really need to stop typing when I'm half asleep. <laughs> if symptoms persisted after a few weeks in a local uh, casualty clearing station, which would normally be close enough to the front lines to hear artillery fire, a casualty would might be evacuated to one of four dedicated psychiatric centers which had been set up further behind the lines and were labeled as NYDN, or Not Yet Diagnosed Nervous. That, that is the men. Mm-hmm. We labeled that. During 1970, shell shock was entirely banned as a diagnosis from the British Armour. Nope. British Army. <laughs> and mentions of it were censored even in medical journals. Why did we do a podcast where I have to read a lot? We know I'm illiterate. You're not even an English major. What's your excuse? I'm a psych major. It's basically half humanities, half science. That's it's like a social science. It's almost like it's a social science. <laughs> almost like it's a social almost science. like that's what it's classified. Stop it. Can I explain? English majors are illiterate. No, we have stickers from Zazzle. They're millennial pink, and they say English, English majors, majors are letter R illiterate. Yes, they do, and they are on everything. They're great. They're on phones and laptops. Going back to Water this. Water bottles. Going back to this. <laughs> the treatment of chronic shell shock varied widely according to the details of the symptoms, the views of the doctors involved, and other factors including rank and class of the patient. So, well, fuck. <laughs> hierarchy still plays into medical diagnosis, oh, like always. it does. There were so many officers and men suffering from shell sh- shock that 19 British military hospital- hospitals were wholly devoted to the treatment of cases. 19 hospitals. Mm-hmm. Ten years after the war, si- 65,000 veterans of war were still receiving treatment for it in Britain. In France, it was possible to visit aged shell shock victims in hospital in 1960. Yep. Some men suffering from shell shock were put on trial and even executed for military crimes, including uh, desertion and cowardice. While it was recognized that the the stress of war could cause men to break down, a lasting episode was likely to be seen as symptomatic of underlying lack of character. Oh my god. 
For instance, in his testimony to the post-war Royal Commission examining shell shock, Lord Gort, a senior, yes, his name was Gort, a senior British Army officer. Gort. Gort. G-O-R-T. Gort. Lord Gort. Gort. What is this? It's child. Glauke. 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 Well, we call it her Glouse. 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 What's the other one? Glouse. Glauke. Lair titties. Lair titties and Gort. Why would Gort be the best? Like, Sir Gort would be such a good cat name. It's Lord Gort, and that is my next cat name. Lord Gort. It's going to be a female Himalayan cat named Lord Gort. Can I please? Wait, is he a shitty dude? Is he going to end up being a shitty Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, I can't name my cat after a shitty dude. For instance, in his testimony to the post-war Royal Commission examining shell shock, Lord Gort, a senior British Army officer, said that shell shock was a weakness and was not found in good units. AKA I'm going to name my cat Lord Gort, and he's going to be an asshole. Cats <laughs> are assholes, so it checks out. The continued pressure to avoid medical recognition of shell shock meant that it was not, in itself, considered an admissible defense. Meaning that if people tried to claim shell shock, because it was technically not a medical diagnosis, mm -hmm. they could still be killed. So that's jazzy. People were killed for basically PTSD. Mm -hmm. Recent research by John Hopkins University has found that the brain tissue of combat veterans who have been exposed to improvised explosive devices, or IEDs, exhibit a pattern of injury in the areas responsible for decision-making, memory, and reasoning. This evidence has led, to researchers, has led researchers to conclude that shell shock may not only be a psychological disorder, since the symptoms exhibited by sufferers from the First World War are very similar to these injuries. So, yeah, that's pretty interesting. I like yeah. the fact that they're still doing research. Yeah. Especially um, with vets coming back from, mm -hmm. like, the Iraq War and stuff like that. Yeah. Because, yeah, that's jazzy. So, yeah, I went a little dark, but mm -hmm. also PTSD is, like, a big thing for me. I worked mm -hmm. with a lot of PTSD patients yeah. over the summer, and, like, it's hard. It, mm -hmm. it puts a toll on your day regardless of everything. Mm-hmm. So, because I covered something so difficult and kind of sad for my main topic, I wanted to have a little fun with my funky Ooh, fact. What's your funky fact? <clears throat> we love Jane's funky fact. The Macintosh, or raincoat, is a form of waterproof raincoat first sold in 1824 made out of rubberized fabric. What does this have to do with <clears throat> anything? Give me a second. That's a cool fact, but, like, why are we talking about a rubber raincoat? Are you ready for me to blow your fucking mind? Is this gonna blow my mind more than Nick Cage tanking in the box office because he bought a cursed home in New Orleans? Miss um, Kilman, Miss Doris Kilman, originally Kilman, is Elizabeth's schoolmistress for yes. history and is born-again Christian. She has a degree in history and during the Great World or the Great War was dismissed from her teaching job because Miss Dolby thought she would be happier with people who shared her views about Germans. She has a German ancestry and wears an unattractive Macintosh coat because she is <laughs> uninterested in dressing to please others. Damn. Said it was relevant. <clears throat> the Macintosh, or raincoat, is a form of waterproof raincoat first sold in 1824 made out of rubberized fa fabric. The Macintosh is named after its Scottish inventor, Charles Macintosh. Oh. Although the Macintosh coat styles have 
has become generic, a genuine Macintosh coat is made from rubberized or rubber laminated material. It has been claimed that the material was invented by the surgeon James Sim, but then copied and patented by Charles Macintosh. Sim's method of creating the solvent from coal tar was published in Tom Thompson's Annals of Philosophy in 1818. This paper was also described the dissolute wait solution dissolution. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Are we in like second grade again? Like when your teacher's like, now what does this part of the word say? You don't have to call me out. My feelings are already hurt. Thanks. Dissolution <laughs> of natural rubber in nefalfa. Nefalfa. It's spelled N A P H T H. I don't know. Nefalfa is a flammable oil containing various hydrocarbons obtained by the dry distillation of organic substances such as coal, shale, or petroleum. However, an exhaustive history of the invention of the Macintosh was published by Schreuer in 1952. The essence of Macintosh's process was the sandwiching of an impermeable layer of a solution of rubber and nefalfa between two layers of fabric. Oh my god. Sim did not propose the sandwich idea and his paper did not mention waterproofing. Waterproofing garments was a with rubber was an old idea and was practiced in pre-Columbian times by the Aztecs who impregnated fabric with latex. I hate that the fact that <laughs> they use the word impregnated. Impregnated fabric with latex and I have to say it one more time. French scientists made balloons gas tight by impregnating fabric with rubber Oof. dissolved in turpentine, but this solution was not satisfactory for making apparel. In 1830, Macintosh's company merged with the clothing company of Thomas Hancock in Manchester. Hancock had also been experimenting with rubber-coated fabrics since 1819. Production of rubberized coats sp soon spread across the UK. That was a struggle. R production of rubberized coats soon spread across the UK. Every kind of coat was produced with rubberized material, including riding coats and coats supplied to the British Army, British Railways, and UK police forces. Early coats had problems with smell, stiffness, and a tendency to melt in hot weather. <laughs> but Hancock further improved his waterproof fabrics, patenting a method of vulcanized rubber in 1843, which I think a lot of things are still made from vulcanized yeah, rubber. Yeah, so sounds right. Good on you, Hancock, um, which solved many problems. Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, the company continued to make waterproof clothing. In 1925, the company was taking over, taken over by Dunlop Rubber. In the mid-1990s, the Macintosh brand owner, Traditional Weatherwear, was on the verge of closing, closing its factory in Blairlin Cumbernaud near Glasgow. Hey, hey. Shout out to where I'm going to be in four weeks. Uh, uh, literally 10 minutes away from a goddamn Haley Kyoko concert that you better fucking go to. If I can afford it. It's like 20 pounds. I will crowdfund. I will crowdfund for you to go see Haley Kyoko. I have told you this. You might have to start crowdfunding then. We gotta make a PayPal so that people can uh, donate so you can go see Haley Kyoko. That people can donate to my life. <laughs> Around Fund the our lifestyle. Fund my life, please. Around the turn of the 21st century, senior staff members acquired the company and established the traditional rubberized Macintosh coats as an upmarket brand in its own right. The, com the company collaborated with le leading fashion houses such as Goose Gucci, Herms. Goose, did you almost know? I almost said Gucci. <laughs> Jane, you would have kicked my ass if that were me. 
Like, you can't even. It's 10.30 and I'm tired. Um, the company collaborated with leading fashion houses such as... Gucci. Gucci. Herms. Isn't it like Hermé or whatever? It's Hermé, but I'm saying Herms because I couldn't fit the accent on the Google Doc. Gucci. Herms. Louis Vuitton. And Liberty. Louis Vuitton. (laughs) (laughs) Liberty's already the most American pronunciation. Freedom and liberty, goddamn. She salutes me (laughs) as she says this. The coats became particularly popular with Japanese women, and the company won a Queen's Award for Enterprise in 2000 for its success in international trade. So it's still kicking. Yeah. In December 2003, the company name was formally changed to Macintosh. (sighs) In 2007, Macintosh was bought by a, a Tokyo firm, ooh, sorry, uh, Yagi Shuso? Mm-hmm. Uh, with the backing of its parent company, Macintosh has continued to expand its reputation and marketing operations. In January 2011, the company opened its first fashion store in London. So basically, Miss Kilman thought she was dressing the, that way because she didn't want to please others by the way she dresses, and Miss Dalley thought she was hideous. But realistically, Miss mm-hmm. Kilman was ahead of her time in the <laughs> fashion world. Miss <laughs> Kilman's a fashionable bitch. <laughs> so that's my funky fact. I love it. I was like, I don't know if you're going to get the reference. But yeah, I, I didn't get the reference because I also haven't read the book all the way through in, like, a year and a half, two years. But, like, literally every time Miss Kilman comes yeah. into the picture, Miss Dalu is like, ugh, that hideous Macintosh Yeah, yeah, she hates her. She's like, mm, this is the worst woman I've ever seen in my life. But she is, in particular, hates that, that coat. coat. And I just had to show. Like, I just got very interested because... And, like, I was reading over the Wikipedia Wikipedia page, and it said, like, Macintosh coat. And I was like, oh, is it, like, the color Macintosh? And, no, I, like, Googled Macintosh coat, and the first thing it came up was, like, this entire brand of coats. Like, Mm -hmm. this entire type of coat that was specifically a Macintosh coat. Hold on, I'm going to pull it up. Yeah. Because it's very... Are they very, like, recognizable? Yes. Is it, like, the, like, yellow raincoat? No. No. No, they are not. Because that's what I'm imagining. Nope, let me find the Wikipedia page. Do-do-do-do-do. See? Ooh! It's like a very long trench coat yeah. almost thing, but it's got like a cape over the shoulders. It's got a capelet. Yeah, so it's like, it's got a capelet, but it's also got long sleeves on the coat. What do they look like now? Like, what do the modern versions look like? Let me see if I can... If you scroll down enough, does it tell you? No, it doesn't, but let me see if I can find... Mm-hmm. Like the company website or something. It's very fashion. It's got like the stiff oh, collar. Oh, here's the company the website. Butt. So let's Ooh. go. They've got menswear, but like they have. Oh, like they have the traditional little icon. Oh my god, those coats are so expensive. Oh yeah. The okay. So the first coat. This is discounted. The first coat we see is originally one thousand three hundred and ninety dollars, discounted to nine hundred and thirty seventy three dollars. Could never. Could never. There's one in here for mm-hmm. 1187 or 6 Oh, my God. But, yeah, there's still, like, those long, like, yeah. almost, not necessarily a trench coat because it doesn't have that, like... The buttons and the, the tie. The buttons and yeah. the tie. It's just a very single-button, collared, mm-hmm. long coat. That's wild. They're very, they're very, like, this is what you see K-pop stars wearing? Mmm, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, like, it's, like, that long coat mm-hmm. that they always wear open. Oh, here's some more, more like, trench, trench coats. coats. Yeah. 
So I guess they do make a bunch of wide varieties of coats, but like, oh, that's a funky one. Oh, I like nice that. That's yellow pad. Bad. They also have women's wear, which I would mm, like to see. Yeah. Is it like the same, probably? Or is it just like, it's all belted? <laughs> it's probably, it's all belted. It's all belted. Yeah, it's literally like the oh, same. Oh, no, it's the same. It's just the same. It's just more expensive. And there's just women. Oh, it's belted. Some of them are belted, I would mm-hmm. say. So, yeah, they still do, like, whole fashion shows and everything oh. like that. They sell, it looks like they sell other things, like dresses mm-hmm. and skirts and stuff like that. But they're most known, mostly known for their coats. And I thought that was super interesting, because I, yeah. I was just going to go on a tangent about dye colors again, because that's where I live. But instead, I found entirely new things. So, coats. Oh, there you go. I'm surprised they were that expensive, and I'm surprised yeah. that Virginia Woolf wrote that's something that would teacher. See, I'm wondering if they used to not be because they were talking about them partnering with really fancy that's brands. So true. it might have previously been something that was a little more practical. I'm gonna look because into it, it just the sound of it sounds like it sounds very practical, and it it's one of those things that it, even if it's a little bit expensive, like if it was like you because you, there's the stereotype of all these like uptight school teachers, like they only care about practicality and like yeah. nothing else. So I'm wondering if it used to be more inexpensive or like more accessible. Classy rise of the trench coat. Trench, the trench coat's forgotten World War One roots. Huh. I'm going on a tangent. Actually, technically it's not a tangent. It's a little bit of a tangent. <laughs> it's fine. I'm just trying to look for a price. Give me a goddamn price. Well, also we'll have to adjust it. That's the thing. Yeah. I don't know if you're going to find it. I don't think so either, but it looks like the trench coat mm-hmm. was invented before World War One. And then very popular in World War One, Burberry was a big producer, mm-hmm. but for more low-end yeah. budgeting. And then suddenly I, it became high-end. Yeah, I was like, Col- that's high-end. Like- oh, by the 1930s, Hollywood was really influential, mm-hmm. and using it in gangster films Ooh. helped link it to more, like, noir styles. Yeah. Which probably helped in- yeah. increase it. Oh, Audrey Hepburn. Oh, of course. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Okay, so it makes sense why it... Yeah, so it would have been before, like, pre... pre the big Hollywood, like, mass uptake, move it. it would have yeah. been... More accessible and More accessible, more, more practical, this and less about I honestly kind of want to find. Like, I'm wondering if I can find, like, an old catalog or something. You know what? That might give you prices. Why... We'll have to we'll update have to do our, that. Yeah. Yes. Because I don't want to make people sit while we do that now, but I definitely want if to. If you can find that. an old catalog, save it for next yeah. week, and we will update, we'll update everyone you. on if we find a price and do a comparison of it, because mm-hmm. I'm very intrigued, because this yeah. was, like, not something that I knew about, and then I, yeah, yeah basically, those were, the, like, the first raincoats, I'm pretty sure. Nice. Like, the first fashionable raincoats. Of course. All right. Do you have anything else to add? Because um, I think I I uh, talked a lot. I think that's everything I have. Everyone should read some Virginia Woolf at some point in their life. It's yeah. really she writes in a really cool way. In a really cool way. Very depressing material. Yeah. But you gotta be prepared for that. If you're in a good headspace and yeah. want to stay in a good headspace, don't recommend Virginia Woolf. If you're already in a kind of dull headspace and just want to read some sad shit, read Virginia, Virginia Woolf. Woolf. Yeah. <laughs> and on that note. Thanks so much for listening to Spilling Tea. The tea is spilt and the covers are closed. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.